Hello, and welcome to Gulf Streams. After a record-breakingly hot summer, drought, wildfires, all just here in Texas, it is no surprise that the changing climate and ongoing environmental threats, something we know all too well here in Houston, are a top-of-mind concern. I'm Weston Twardowski, an instructor in Rice's Environmental Studies Program and the Program Manager of the Deluvial Houston Initiative, an Andrew W. Mellon Foundation research initiative housed at Rice University. KPFT Houston and Rice's Center for Environmental Studies in conjunction with the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio have partnered to bring you a new show that delves into the challenges of our region and our planet as we face a time of increasingly turbulent environmental threats. Some of these challenges are historic. Some are only now beginning to be understood and are only going to worsen in the future. We'll talk with leading experts and community leaders to better understand the problems and potential solutions facing our community. To start us off, we're talking about an issue that has been front-page news over the last two years. For decades, high levels of cancer have been well-known to community members of the mostly black and Hispanic Fifth Ward community. While the problem has long been discussed, only in the last few years have government leaders begun publicly acknowledging the harm caused by creosote a chemical byproduct long used to treat wood and essential to making Houston a rail capital in the early and mid-20th century. Today, we're talking with two community leaders, organizer Sandra Edwards and Greater Fifth Ward Super Neighborhood President Joetta Stevenson, both longtime residents of the Fifth Ward and two activists whose work has directly contributed to both the discovery and now ongoing legal remedies related to this toxin. We're also here with Aaron Ambroso, the co-founder and co-director of the Houston Climate Justice Museum. As we talk with Joetta, Sandra, and Aaron, we welcome you to call in with your own questions. Do you have a story about how creosote has impacted your life? Call us at 713-526-5738, extension 2. Welcome, Joetta, Sandra, and Aaron. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I am so uh, delighted to be speaking with you about this issue that we've been following and that's been really, I mean, you've known about this for so long, and yet Greater Houston has really only figured this out in the last couple of years. Um, so I'm going to start with a really basic question for anybody who wants to jump off of what is creosote? Well, we know definitely it is a carcinogen. Uh, which is, um, that's a, a term that most people understand connected to cancer. Uh, it is something um, that it is, it was used as a wood preservative uh, for the railroad ties. And if you know anything about Fifth Ward, we're basically a web of rail lines because um, the Inglewood rail yard sits uh, off of a uh, Liberty Road in Fifth Ward. Uh, so we have a lot of a uh, rail line just webbing through the community. Uh, so those ties, I remember as young as a little bitty kid, oftentimes, I guess, when they got ready to change them out, they would pile them all, uh, up in the at the end of the block, right there next to the railroad. And they would leave them there a little while, I guess, so until the contractors or whomever would come and, and pick them up and, and actually exchange uh, whatever ties they needed to exchange. Uh, they were very sturdy pieces of wood, and um, that that's pretty much my beginning uh, uh, knowledge about uh, um, 
about the the real ties and then my beginning knowledge about the creosote came much later in my adult life (laughs) and to add to that they have other elements that they add to the creosote to make it stretch as they say but it was like a bomb uh extermination because creosote already killing people then you add other elements that's making it worse and then it's bad to breathe this, but it's all in the air. You're cooking it in a community that has kids, elderly people, just people. And everybody is dying from it. I was getting sick from it. And um, after they put, before they stacked the tires, they were dipping them in that element, in that, con- that concoction, as I call it, a concoction, because that's what it was. They dipped it in there, and then they were stored inside the fence, and it ran off into the community. All off off of Liberty Road into Liberty, uh, into Lavender Street, Solo Street, Whipper, all the streets that's going parallel with there, um, with your peak. So yeah, it's 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 a lot of different other elements. We just can't name them all at right now, but it's a lot of different elements that's deadly. Absolutely. I mean, I know one of the big stories has been around dioxin, which is a creosote extinter. And so, yes, it's, it's, it's a creosote problem that we use almost as a shorthand for a huge range of chemicals right. that Telephone are involved. Poles. Exactly. And yes. one sits right in front of my house. I used to literally clam it every other day and wonder why my legs were broken out and infotigers and all that. Okay, we know now what it was. Yes, I, it takes it takes me back to, to strong memories of playing around telephone poles and being told, eh, don't touch that, and not thinking anything of it, and, and now being really, really horrified by, <laughs> right. by childhood memories. Yes, yes. 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 Because we, we just said, oh, that's tar. Yeah, and that's right? all we knew. That's all star. we knew. Tar. But they were everywhere because of the way the phone lines mm-hmm. were running yes. throughout every community. Yeah, and, and just to give a sense of context here, too, uh, something like 90% of all railroad ties today are still creosote treated. Still. Something like or 50, maybe it's 50% of all utility poles are treated with creosote. Yes. So it's banned in most other countries, but it's still legal here for commercial use. And the, the creosote council, which is sort of the lobbying arm of the creosote industry, um, pours money in every year to keep creosote uh, in use essentially so it's still an ongoing uh, it's still a chemical that's on it's still being used to treat wood today let me tell you what i seen yesterday that's very disturbing to me and i hope a lot of people's listening lamar fleming i think it's middle school now mm-hmm. they backyard they backfield has a lot of new poles that's shining from solo street I seen this when I passed by the other night, and I'm like, it's nighttime, and that pole is shining. I need somebody to get to Lamar Fleming Middle School. I'm saying this loudly because I need them to test those poles because kids are running. That's the track field. That's Mm. the field that they do football practice on. Those kids should not have no – they should not have be in contact with it. It's – it bothered me because when I seen it, I didn't know who to tell at the time because I know my fight. But somebody need to get over to Lamar Fleming off Collinsworth and check those phone poles in the back of that field because they know what we're going to get up against, what we're fighting. Why would you put phones in a school field where the kids play football, where they run track? And it's, it, it's like by five of them. 
And so, I mean, absolutely, that that demonstrates this ongoing problem, not just in the remnants of creosote, but just the ongoing continuation of where we're seeing this around town. In our communities. Absolutely. Erin, I, I, I want to turn to you for a second just to say that the, the reason I invited you on is just the Houston Climate Justice Museum, which you are a co-founder and co-director of, just closed a really wonderful exhibit detailing both oral histories of community members, but also the kind of deep history of creosote. And, and to, before we jump right into the present and the future issues that are attached to this, I would like to take a second actually to talk a little historically about creosote, because I know you've done a lot of research. And can you talk both about why this became such a prominent uh, substance in Houston and also some about, you know, but before we hear about, okay, well, we've only known about this for the last two years and, okay, how, how are we supposed to know? What was some of the earlier research done into creosote, and how long have we actually known this has been a problem? Yeah. Uh, creosote has a lot of fascinating histories. Uh, uh, since the 1770s, doctors in Britain were connecting creosote with cancer um, in chimney sweep boys. And I'm sorry, the 1760s? 1770s. 17, oh, forgive me, 1770s. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, but... Even in the 1910s, Great Britain was enacting laws to protect creosote workers because while creosote is a carcinogen, it's also very harmful to just uh, for, let's say, acute contact. So um, uh, handling creosote, what we know is that creosote workers were easily identifiable because they had burns and scars on their skin. So it's not just something that causes long-term effects. It's it's an an immediate harm, too. Um, So... uh, uh, and the creosote industry has, uh, at least in the United States, which has been present, let's say, for much of the 20th century, um, has worked, and Southern Pacific specifically, uh, who operated the Englewood Yard site, worked to um, downplay um, and, and uh, workers' uh, attempts at redress. So there's court cases going back for a lot of the 20th century of workers who uh, have fallen in creosote pits or have handled creosote and gotten burns or cancer and who are trying to uh, bring redress uh, for their harms to the company. And the company is basically... Um, uh, done lots of different strategies to um, to turn them away, but one of them was for much of the early 20th century that the industry um, peddled pseudoscientific beliefs that people with darker skin were more immune to, to creosote. And the creosote industry, especially in the South, um, employed um, employed African Americans and immigrants predominantly to, to handle creosote ties. Um, and as Joette and Sandra just mentioned, it's incredibly messy business. Um, and they were often doing it without any kind of protective gear. So um, you can imagine that, that the kind of um, harm that would come from handling it on, day, on a day-to-day basis. Um, so, uh, you know, there's um, a whole history of, of creosote. And, 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 you know, thinking about that history can also think help us think about um, – uh, the transformation of forests from North Carolina to Texas that were that were cut down to uh, those logs came to Houston um, uh, uh, to be treated. Um, so there's a whole transformation of of, of landscape that creosote is, is um, wrapped up in as well. And um, uh, yeah, it, it's an it's an incredibly multi-dimensional um, 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 substance. Thanks. I I want to you know some of what you're alluding to the idea that. Uh, the false idea that people with darker skin, right, are, are less responsive to pain, um, which is something that, you know, we have ongoing studies that demonstrate the doctors still at some level actually think this and have certain assumptions, and it shows up in how we treat pain. Um, and so a, a long-standing historical issue, but it points to the fact that this is overwhelmingly an issue that has disproportionately fallen on communities of color in this community, and in, in Houston and certainly elsewhere. Um, yes. 
which which brings in the idea of environmental justice, um, which for our, our listeners who don't know, I'm wondering if someone wants to, to provide a definition of environmental justice. We have the father of environmental justice right out of Houston over at TSU. That's so this Robert is Robert Bullard. 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 That's Bullard. Yes, Robert Bullard. Yes, yes, That's yes. Uncle Robert to me. Yes, Uncle yes. Robert, yes, he is the father of environmental. And I, I, he is, I have a passion for him because he has a passion that I didn't know I was an environmentalist until about four years ago. But, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm wondering if you can actually say more about that. What made you What made you uh, convert over to believing yourself an environmentalist? Because somebody had to say something. If I don't mm. do it, who going to do it? Robert Bullock can't come all the way to Fifth Ward and fight for us, too. He, he gives me the knowledge, and I take it back to Fifth Ward. I mean, he's just brilliant. I, I have to use the word for him, brilliant. Because he knows the ins and outs, he knows the discrimination we have been through for decades and decades, and if he wouldn't have cowed it out, I don't think it still would be out. He put it out there and let people know, this is happening, and it's happening in your back door. If you don't open it and look out, you're not going to know about it. And then you step out the front door, you're going to get slapped with it. He is so, he was so on point when I first met him, and I've been just, he's just my idol. When it comes to environmental, I want to be him when I grow up. <laughs> if I ever grow up, but anyway, I'm, I mean, I'm getting more, most of my guidance from him. I want to learn what he he's teaching and what he's putting out there. I'm absorbing it all. I'm absorbing. I'm just like this sponge. I want to know because I want to fight back. I'm tired of this. Like you say, they use the brown and uh, black as if our skin is thick or something, or it doesn't matter to them. They can handle it. All that—that's all crazy, because you're looking at us as if we the strong ones, but you're still killing us. We are not. We if you cut me, I'm gonna bleed red. You cut you, you're gonna bleed red. We the same. It's just the color difference. It's just the color. I just I have a theater background as well, and I have to, to pause for a moment just to notice that you're almost going Shakespearean. <laughs> There's a really wonderful uh, monologue. You know, if you brick us, do we not bleed? I mean, I was just like, oh, I was, I was getting goosebumps there for a moment as I was transported to Shakespeare. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, mean, I wish everybody would look at it like this, though. We all human. And if you don't look out for each other, you are all, it's just greed. They let profit over people take over. And when you all when you put money before people, health and life, you just I'm gonna see it on the air. Y'all tell me if I'm wrong. You stupid. You stupid because it money you can't take it with you. But the people that you're hurting could be here to help you or do something for you. Construct. You don't know who all you hurting if you don't try to find out. You know, this is, it gets to the point that sometimes, I went into a depression this weekend, and I, I had to, I, Mama didn't even know about it, but I, I kind of told her a glimpse of it yesterday. I shut down Friday and Saturday over this, over this, because of they reports saying there wasn't no counts out here, but everybody on my street did. We just had a funeral two weeks ago. I'm, I mean, it, when does it stop? When does you, when do you say, Okay, we done caused them enough problems. Let's see how we can help them now. Because all that sending us back, I'm sorry. We feel sorry for your dear. You don't care. You're not sorry. Because if you was, you would do more. But you're not. You're doing less as possible. And that's hurting my community. And I'm going to keep speaking up about it and speaking out. Because it needs to be heard. 
I want to pause for one moment. Just the, the annoying professor in me does want to backtrack to actually provide a definition of environmental justice just for, for folks who don't know it. What else? What else um, <laughs> no, no, you're good. You're good. <laughs> Um, and so, yes, exactly. As we're talking about Dr. Bullard, who really did some pioneering work in the 80s around landfills and proving that landfills were overwhelmingly located in communities of color around Houston and other environments, and since then has built up incredible networks around the country and produced, I think, something insane, like 18 books on the topic, um, and really doing an amazing job of demonstrating how zip codes can change your life expectancy by 18 years, um, and that overwhelmingly this is going to fall on communities of color. And so when we think about environmental justice, it's it's certainly connected to social justice movements, but it's very much thinking about these long-term environmental effects Mm -hmm. and how they're impacting different communities. I don't know if anybody wants to add on to that, but that's that's my my quickie definition of environmental justice for folks. Um, Bringing it to the black and brown communities, all your unjustly things, you'll find a community like us and bring it and dump it on us and say, this is justice. Okay, that's unjustly to me. Well, and as we talk about justice and what you're hinting at, I'm wondering, um, you know, certainly I want to talk about solutions and steps forward and what, you know, you, what, what is the, the, the community you envision. Um, but maybe it's actually impactful in a way, if I can, to ask, can you share personal stories about this, how this has impacted your life um, or, or neighbors' stories? Um, but, you know, just to put a, a human perspective on, what are what is the human toll of creosote? Deadly, it kills. It has killed. It's still killing. That's what my teacher said. Creosote has killed me, and it's still killing um, because it is. No, I'm gonna let Mama take this. Mama had you know, she she had cancer twice, so I think that's a better question for her to answer than me because she can take you there. Um, um basically, I, I guess. I heard your question, but um, my brain was somewhere else, (laughs) Uh, in all honesty, Uh, because as, you know, he was uh, explaining the knowledge about how dangerous creosote has always been. Uh, So I'm thinking about the thousands of people who already knew over the years, over the decades, and never told us. I, I'm thinking about the um, the the agencies and entities that knew. I'm thinking about every level of government that knew and did nothing to bring it to the community to say, look, this is in your community and this is what it's doing. It's not tar, it's a killer. Nobody said anything you mentioned earlier about uh you noticed that there was been an upsurge and really a push and and fight back over the most recent years you're right because this woman here became that that point that tip of that spear and she was gonna fight relentlessly and loudly and the people in the immediate vicinity of the rail yard because see the the um creosote plant was right there near closer to where she's living right across the street mm-hmm. when it exploded in in the 80s but think about it the railroad is is it's a good bad and ugly about it because it's a two-edged sword um 
my my grandfather retired from Southern Pacific because the railroad was one of those entities that actually hired black people and gave us jobs so that we could earn a living and take care of our families. They not only worked with the creosote, they were in the rail cars. They were everywhere working. So when we move into communities that are near, the, near where you work, we don't know that you already know that you, you, there's something in place to kill us. And, and the silence is just deafening. And it's, it's heartbreaking, really. Cause it really made me sad just thinking that things were, were looked at in the 1700s, seriously? Yeah. You know, that, that's when locomotives were, I don't even, was the railroad even existing in the United States then? I mean, there were, there were drawings. <laughs> <laughs> they were coming along. Yeah. We don't know how many of them was wanted, but they were coming along. Oh, it was certainly and the, I'm thinking yeah, about railroads the railroads in the early 19th century, yeah. Right, and I'm thinking about the power you have to have to, to have a, a, a creosote lobbyist, basically, that are so strong that we, there's only been a little bit of, you know, the fight has only been a, a tap on, on the nose. So, oh, stop it, a tap on the hand. Until the people that found out, the people impacted, started screaming and wouldn't stop and couldn't be bought. Mm-hmm. Can you talk? I'm sorry, Aaron. Oh, no. no. Uh, I was going to say that, you know, the railroads... Uh, originally started using creosote because um, it was a way to preserve wood so they wouldn't have to train, change out their, their, their ties all right. the time. So it's a way of, it was a cost-saving uh, yes. device. And the a history, preservative the, for them, but yes. a killer for us. Exactly. So it, it really comes down to uh, profit uh, on the one hand. and people. Um, like you were saying, yeah. And um, uh, so, and I think that there's an, there's an, um, an element of, of frontierism uh, or sort of technological frontierism. In other words, if we can make a substance which is so complex, creosote is, a, is, is not one single chemical. It's a, it's a chemical soup. It's got dioxin. It's got these extended. You know, gumbo. we're still trying to figure out what it is. <laughs> That's right? what it it's is. A gumbo. Gumbo. And yes. gumbo. That complexity has been used by the industry to evade regulation, but also to evade responsibility. Right. In other words, uh, how do you connect your problem with one of these thousands of chemicals that might or might not be present in creosote somewhere? Right. So there's a sort of um, uh, technological frontierism, a space of if you can invent a technology that, that can get out ahead of regulation, then you don't have to worry about the uh, the human cost. You don't, and, and that's a logic that plays out in a lot of other industries um, in terms of environmental justice more broadly too. So um, I think that's a um, this idea of trying to get into this lawless space where you can invent a technology that uh, is out in front of the regulations that can have all sorts of um, awful effects, but you can call it uh, you know externalities or something like that, and 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 uh, and then move on. Um, and that's a logic that we see played out a lot. Mm-hmm. To that point, I want to ask about certainly, you know, the Fifth Ward knew something was wrong, right? That was right. that was unmistakable for a long time. Can you talk some about when those dots started getting connected? Who was who was maneuvering? To, to make that point of we know what this is, we know this is a carcinogen, and how that uh, advocacy has moved forward. Um, yeah. Well, we knew something was wrong when people kept getting sick. And that, let me tell you what and, I'm... But we didn't know the source. 
and and you know we we have a we have a nationally known cancer cr- cluster and you know you just named the little cancers but we had all kinds of cancers <laughs> going through fifth war and the main ones was the lung stomach esophagus Oh, it was one more. It's four major ones, and everybody on my street had lung. Every one of them had lung. The funeral we just went to, she died of lung cancer. And she was an advocate and and, and a fighter uh, in the community. Miss Bill. Miss Bill. Barbara Bill. Miss Bill. At the end of Lavender Street. Tended all the meetings. Uh, A fighter. fighter. And she she fought cancer to the end. She... Miss Bill went in the hospital, I think, on a Saturday. We were at a funeral that she wanted to attend. She couldn't. So the next Saturday, Miss Bill was gone. And Miss Bill was a strong, she was a strong advocate in the community for her. To, and it hit me hard because me and Miss Bill had beef at first, but we had turned to be real cool for the last two years. She was my inside scoop. I was her inside scoop. We shared information to make sure that we stayed on the path that we needed to be on. She was, I can't say no more than that she was a strong individual. She was passionate about this. And for her to die to this, oh, yeah, I was real mad. I did a news press after that because this was one of our impact members, one of our strong fighters that spoke up and spoke out, and now she's gone. So we really, we knew something's wrong. People keep getting cancer, but we never, we didn't know what the source was. Uh, most people, when they say, oh, oh, my, my, my husband has cancer or whatever, no one really discusses, well, what was the source? The only time there was a push or a big, uh, a lot of advertisement about the source of cancer was when people went after the tobacco companies, mm-hmm. you know. This but all of this other stuff, I, I hadn't heard of any other specific sources. Yeah. Do you remember the first time someone said creosote is a substance that has this history here, and we think that might be causing these cancers? Kathy Bruford Daniels and Sandra Small, they were the first two that I actually heard those words from. And when they brought me in... I, I, that's the words I spread it. The cancer, I mean, the Creso is killing people. That's why I got on that shirt, Creso Kill Me. Because that was the first piece of information I got before I started digging and doing my own research. And then start talking to Dr. Robert Bullock, then start talking to Dr. Laura Hopkins. I, I just got nosy. I started doing research on stuff and started reading up on stuff, started calling people, asking questions. I got Keith Downey, and, you know, asking him things, too. He was my person. Every time somebody would die, I would call Keith crying. I know he was tired of me because it was happening a little frequently. Then I started putting it on mama, uh, on her back now. So, I, I mean, I know people... Getting, they're probably not tired of me because they know what I'm doing and how I feel about it. But it's just the idea. I need to share my burdens with somebody, you know, because everybody putting it on me. I get these calls every week or every other week or so. And I had nobody to share it with, so I would call Keith, tell him. Now I call Mama, tell her. Now I got a lot of people I could actually turn to. Now people are getting more involved because they know their families are in this crisis with us. They have family members sick. I have cousins sick. I have one that's in hospice right now. I am very, I'm, I'm, I get mad every time I think about this because 
we're losing people every day, and it's like they keep saying they're sorry. You're not sorry. You're not doing anything. And like Mama said, that it was governments way before these governments that's in place now knew about this, did nothing. So I can't get mad to Sylvester Turner, Mayor Turner, because he the first one stood up and say, I'm going to help these people. Everybody else knew before him, did nobody stand up, did nobody do anything. Everybody looking the other way, turning the other cheek. He didn't do that for this. He didn't do that for this. He got involved. So I got to give him his props. Our mayor did something. I mean, because he went after them. And who holds them accountable when all this is said and done and we know who the problem Who going to hold them accountable when they do wrong? Because like she said, that little snap on the head, somebody, oh, you did this, don't do this. That's all they getting. And they still doing it. So I want to know who do we go after to get them to, uh, to pay for what they are doing. Who holds them accountable? Nobody has answered that question yet because they have not been held accountable. And I'm sick and tired of it. So I need somebody to step up to the plate and hold them accountable. I want to jump into accountability and, and what next steps are really quick, but I, I do have to throw out a, it is 1230, um, and you're listening to KPFT Houston. Um, if you have a question, if you'd like to share a story, please feel free to call in at 713-526-5738, extension 2. We have some wonderful panelists with us. Please give us a call if there's anything you would like to bring up. Um, okay, so yes. I think that accountability it started grassroots. It didn't start in the mayor's office. Mm-mm. It didn't start with no elected officials. It started with regular people that were impacted in this community. I recall it, it, I recall the first time that um, a, a number of people in the community uh, approached uh, Reverend uh, James Caldwell. He's with Coco. Uh, uh, and Can you they, tell us what COCO is for those who don't Coco know? COCO is the Coalition of Community Organizations. That's the name of it. Uh, and uh, COCO originally, they're, they're one of those uh, outreach entities that were sent out blasts and sent out lots of information. But what I discovered as I grew to know Reverend Caldwell, that he had a passion for environmental issues and he was always trying to drag me into, <laughs> into <environmental laughs> issues so I can know more and learn more whatever and and I remember he was approached by people that lived over close to that rail yard that rail yard where that creosote plant blew up and they approached him and said nothing's happening we're not going getting any kind of traction nothing's is occurring nothing is going on and and at that time I was a very active member of the Texas Organizing Project, TOP, and we were having our chapter meetings in the communities, in various communities, and we were tackling all kinds of issues. Well, uh, Reverend Caldwell was the president of that chapter, the Fifth Ward chapter, and so many of us within the community were attending those meetings as well as larger meetings at top. So he's told me one day, he says, people coming, he has a real big baritone people are coming to the community and, um, uh, you know, they, they're saying that not a lot, enough things are being done. And so what he did is he contacted uh, entities like Lone Star Legal Aid, uh, Rodrigo, that's the first time I, I had yes. met Rodrigo. He said, so they're going to meet after our chapter meeting. 
So I said, oh, okay. And he said, you know, they're over there by that rail yard, you know, uh, where, you know, like Kathy, you know, like her brother, I think her brother, one of her brothers Joseph approached Bell. him about it. Joseph and, uh, and he said, they said they had, nothing was being done. They weren't, no movement, nothing. So that's when the beginning stages of the first meeting that I know of, that uh, they came in and Rodrigo with Lone Star Legal Aid set up a, a uh, actually a, a workshop and he talked talked about he had all kinds of um um powerpoint he talked about creosote what is creosote blah 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 so that was like the beginning stages of what i call an organized effort targeting the creosote uh impact itself that's what i know of the um uh at that time uh besides my being active with top I was a member of the uh, super neighborhood, and I recall that one of the things that happened within that period of time, Union Pacific went in and started digging in the rail yard. And Kathy calls me, right, because at, I think I might have become the pre- vice president at the time. She was the president of the super neighborhood. And she was like, oh, they're over there in the rail yard, and uh, they're digging it up, they're digging it up, and they're not supposed to touch it. <laughs> <laughs> She said, because it's contaminated. They're not supposed to touch it. And what they did is while she was out there with her little camera phone trying to, to videotape it, they, they pretty much what I call bum rushed because she said they rushed off that yard. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Who, what, are you, what are you trying to do? Blah, 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 blah. In other words, those eyes terrified them, which to me is a sure sign of something I'm doing wrong. something wrong. Why are you looking? Yeah. So she was taking pictures, and she knew something was wrong with them touching that ground, and they were digging it up. They hadn't told the community. They didn't say anything. So imagine what was let out into the air. Imagine uh, what 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 loosening of that soil did to and our when community. And it rained after harvest. Right, and 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 Washed they continued. It. So they what they did is they didn't they were digging it up, but they didn't move it out of Fifth Ward. Sure they moved it to another part of the real yard. So my question was, what? What Why is did that? you even so disturb? That organized effort. And one of the things that Super Neighborhood did, uh, Kathy set up um, a, uh, um, a community meeting. Um, um, what is it? Uh, Sheila Jackson Lee came. She got caught by the railroad, actually. She was yeah, stopped she by was the train. <laughs> she got there kind of late because the train held her back. But everybody came to talk about what Union Pacific was doing. Why were they touching that soil? Blah, blah, blah. And and uh, we had maybe a couple of meetings like that. So it what what this last few years, the last what five years, what you've seen is a a start and a building of an organized effort from the ground to hold people accountable, be it Union Pacific and elected officials. Yes. Now they're a little bit our elected officials are a little bit more vocal now, but guess what? They only lit vocal. the fire were the people impacted in the community. Because Union Pacific had even prior had gone around in the immediate vicinity uh trying to buy water rights. And they were giving out a thousand dollars for your water rights. First of all, we don't have wells. We not haven't used wells in decades. So why are you buying the water? This is when I really got passionate. You gave me a thousand dollars. You paid me to come after you, because I don't have a well. I, I 
I, my water rights come from the city. So if I'm going to sue somebody for my water, I'm going to go to the city and sue them. Okay, now you open up a can of worms, and I'm finna go fishing with them. And you finna be the bait. Yeah, that's how I did it. And I went from there, and this is how I got to start participating. You know, I wasn't it, it really, really involved until they came to me with the thousand. Okay, so you're doing something wrong. You pay, you're paying me to go after you. That's what you're doing. So this is how they gave me a thousand dollars to go after them. This is where I started from. They paid me to come after them. That's the way I'm gonna look at it. I'm where I'm gonna keep it because I don't have a will. And if you did your homework, you would have knew I didn't have a will. You was trying to give me hush hush money mm-hmm. that made me talk talk till I can't stop. Give me another thousand. See how much more dirt I come up with. Exactly. It was hush money. It was hush money. And it was Because a lot of people took it, and they thought they didn't have a lawsuit or nothing. Let me tell you how I did that. I went and got a lawyer and started a lawsuit hmm. with that thousand. That's what I want to get to is, yeah, you've talked about the need for accountability. You know, you've opened a lawsuit. What does accountability look like? What are solutions that you would, would find acceptable to this decades-long, almost a century-long, maybe you more can't than a century-long problem? You can't pay for my people to come back. So you need to make us comfortable as as we live in our life. You need to make sure that I have no issues. You need to make sure that we have everything in our health, like insurance, because you know where we stay and you know what you have done to the area. Make sure these people have insurance and they are taken care of. I mean, medical insurance, that's what I'm talking about. Life insurance, too. Like, I want to take it a step further because we done paid for funeral after funeral after funeral. We're tired of that. So why don't you pay for some funerals now? pay for some life insurance and medical insurance for us to see the doctor. And then maybe we could say you are being a good neighbor. But right now you ain't, you ain't, you ain't, <clears throat> you're nothing to us right now because you're dirt to us and mud because this the way you're treating us as if we are. So you'll never be considered as a good neighborly, res- I mean a good neighbor working in our community. You'll never be welcome. Even though you may continue to run your trains up and down, you'll never be welcome. Because you're not treating us as if we're human. And you're running through our our community. I I think one of the other things that they should do is when they should um, start, you know, put funding to back all of that up. Mm -hmm. And then also allow people to be tested in perpetuity. Because we have had thousands of people. This Fifth Ward was a thriving community. We had literally a black Wall Street up and down Lions we Avenue. We were the black Wall We Street. had a powerful high school, Phyllis Wheatley. Uh, we, we had doctors, lawyers, um, people worked for steel companies. We had, uh, it was a regular working class, middle class uh, uh, community of children and families everywhere. Imagine that you have been impacted from birth because a lot of us were born in Fifth Ward. I was born on Lyons Avenue. So uh, upon being born there, a lot of us, as when we went to school, we graduated, we went to college, some of us didn't come back. So we don't know what occurred, whether or not somebody got canceled when they moved and stayed in New York based upon them swimming around in the plan and, and playing in water as that were real rainbow colored when they were little all the way through high school. So yeah. they need to be do right, make us feel right. And to do that, cancer doesn't just pop up out of the blue. It takes a while for it to develop. I think there needs to be funding and effort put forth 
to look at that that type of area so that people can be monitored and tested that grew up in that community. Because like I said, those ties and those rail rail yards, railroads rather, they were everywhere. Those lines were, were webbing through Spaghetti. Fifth Ward. Spaghetti and those trains were stopped everywhere because we had a lot of businesses, a lot of um, uh, manufacturing companies, vinegar companies, rice mills, all of this stuff, all in that one community. I need people to step up and do right for a community that they, everybody across America love to bring up when they talk about Barbara Jordan. They love Mickey to bring Leland. up when they talk about Mickey Leland. They love to bring up when they talk about George Foreman, oh, you King. know, miss me. So, you know, do right for the community that you use all the time for your for your sound bites and your photo ops. Do right for the human beings that were directly impacted by a powerful entity that continues to be powerful, that only has been held accountable in the most recent years by grassroots ordinary people. Uh, right. The right. Oh. Yeah. Sorry, Aaron. No, I mean, uh, I think those are amazing points. I also wanted to add that, um, you know, trains. They did a lot of bad. Union Pacific, Southern Pacific, has done a lot of bad things yes. that we're talking about. And just to give people context, also the rail yard, the Creosote yard that we're talking about was operating from 1911 to 1984, mm-hmm. roughly. So that's the time that Creosote's actively being used there. That was then owned by Southern Pacific. That transferred now to Union Pacific. Yeah. So it can be a little complicated to keep everything straight. But Union Pacific, you know, um, is on the one hand, still using diesel trains, outdated diesel trains that are Mm -hmm. really bad. Uh, And we could also imagine a world where um, a train, a light rail, an electric train can be, uh, for public transportation, could do a lot of good. I mean, um, uh, so we can totally, you know, all of those things that you guys were saying, and we can take that opportunity to to reimagine um, the train and 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 transportation and and decarbonizing all these things they can all they can go together rectifying Excellent. and moving forward yes yeah. I, um so i do see we have a call from walter so we're going to switch over uh walter um <laughs> join us now uh, <laughs> we'd love to hear from you thank you do you have a question or do you want to share something with us i do have a question please go My ahead question is it's been 44 years since the inglewood explosion in fifth ward how many tests has the Union Pacific conducted for the safety and to ensure that these people in the Fifth Ward that's specifically close to this rail yard are not exposed or hadn't been exposed or what problems that it could have caused them since that? They just recently came up with a test stating that they hadn't found anything. But... For the last 44 years, have they conducted these tests for these? Good question. And the answer is no. Little to nothing. (laughs) Very little testing. And the testing they did was not for us. It did not uh help us at all because let them tell it their results were like no pathway through our fence which is a wild fence just like the fence i got last time i checked when it rained and it come water come through it so what stops your contamination from coming through it i don't know maybe you got a genie over there know how to block all that out or something i don't know but uh yeah just like i said before it's 
everywhere the contamination came through your fence and still coming through it. They do not admit to contaminating the community. If you notice when there's, you know, their press releases and things like that, it's always we're 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 uh, dedicated to cleaning up the site. The thing about it is, how do you obtain that information? This is Walter Mallet. How would you obtain that op- information for the present and the future of this residence in Fifth Ward and Cashmere Garden? How and where do you find this information that the Union Pacific done their due diligence to do ensure that they were at the best, doing the best, and their power to protect these people. First, you're not going to find that because they have not did they best. They have not did anything. So you'll be looking for a ghost because it's not going to be, it doesn't exist. They haven't done anything. They are not looking to do anything. As you can keep saying, they sorry for what the community go through. But they're causing the problem. But they haven't done anything. So some of it's actionable too, right? It's you know there there is a lawsuit against Union Pacific. There is there action is. to move forward, and these kind of processes will demand legal documents be shown, yes. evidence of these kind of tests if they do exist. But the reality is, when you're dealing with a corporate enterprise, the recourse is legal. The recourse is Everything through a lawsuit is totally and legal. moving through there. But part of the reason this issue has become so prominent over the last two years is a series of lawsuits against Union Pacific. Right. So we're talking gross negligence. That's the conversation that we're having right now. I mean, I'm not going to pretend to be a lawyer, <laughs> nor am I well steeped in the, the legal documents involved in this case. Uh, you could certainly pull up what the lawsuit is and look into it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's how this is going to have to move. Aaron, I think you want to jump in? Yes. Oh, no, I, I was just going to say there's a mass I, there's a mass action lawsuit right now for with something like 3,000 residents um, mm-hmm. that's being brought against Union Pacific um, that I think the city or the county have issued a ten- intents to sue. Intents to sue, yes. And uh, so, um, and then also, I mean, we, maybe we can talk about this as well, which is that right now there's um, a massive new round of testing that that the EPA has announced. That the yes. EPA, I don't, you all have, I think, been involved with that. Um, yes. So I don't know where the current status of that is. They gave one timeline. I think we've, <laughs> we've we, that timeline has come and gone. So I don't know where things stand with that. But so there's Working there's it out. there's things that are happening. And then also, um, and you guys can speak to this as well, which is that the the city has announced recently that they'll be relocating some residents. So, um, yeah. so yeah, I think there's there's definitely it's a moving target. It's okay. ongoing changes. Um, yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Walter. Um, I really appreciate that call and that question. Um, I, I did want to actually get into that because there's been a wave of news around the idea of relocation. And I think that's kind of a twofold question, right? One of which is, one, how real is this? Um, and two, uh, is is that the best outcome? Is, is that the outcome that is desirable? And if it's not, what are other potential alternatives? I don't think it's actually the best but it's a good solution for a lot of us because if you have cancer and you're going in remission you're returning back home to the same place you got cancer that doesn't make sense because you go right back into can you go back into the ailment i mean you're being sick again so for those people i think they should relocate 
But on the other hand, I'm thinking like in certain people's situation, if you have your property, you like your property, you don't think it's no contamination, why not rebuild that person's house on their property if they want that? I mean, I don't see a problem with that because in my, don't quote me. This is just <laughs> me. I want y'all to understand that. My head, I'm like, if it's your house that's contaminated because all the stuff went through your house when the windows blew out, it's on your walls and everything. If you have not replaced anything in your house, your house is what's making you sick. Build them a new house. Lift them up off the ground a little bit. That's what I was shooting for. Build me a new house and i shut up. Not shut up, but i quieting down a little bit but you know just <laughs> if you have property it's already paid for and you don't think your te- your property has been tested and you don't think it's too contaminated or it's not too far to go to live on rebuild that house for that person let them stay where they want to stay let them stay at their resident just rebuild the house the house is what's making them sick they old the old outdated wood the lead in the wood and all that that's holding all the contamination you just rebuild their houses. Tear their house down and rebuild it on their property if they want that. But most of them are suiting for relocation. And I'm biased, but I'm in some way. Yeah, no, no we're, we're all representing ourselves <laughs> in our yeah, own opinions. Yeah. Um, but I will say we have a super neighborhood president with us. I mean, and I think you hear from a lot of community members. What is your feeling of what the community, how do they feel about this? I do. Um, I do hear from uh, different people. Um um, one thing, it, it, everyone is confused. How come they just can't clean it up? Uh, and I think a lot of that stalling has been because Union Pacific has consistently denied that they've contaminated the community. It, it's kind of like a, it's like an abuser. It's like I love you, and I didn't mean to, to slap you. But you know I love you, right? And it's always, I'm for the community, we're going to help out, but you won't clean it up. You won't, you, like she mentioned, the, um, that what was the strike team. That was what the mayor announced at a, 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 a press conference about, I guess, about, three, about a month ago. And the, the strike team isn't funded, and it wasn't even for, fully put together uh, at what entities would be, participate in it. They don't even have the funds to really to handle the people that would say, I do want to move. They were asking even during the, uh, the press conference, uh, the city is, is, put, is behind it. The county is behind it because what is the Menifee was definitely on board. Uh, but where's the where's the fed we need federal money we need epa money or whatever to help this turn into fruition but um they just won't clean it up uh about a week ago uh there was a an email that was sent out uh to stakeholders in the community from union pacific and that that email cited a a study that had been done last year in 22 uh, and they cited it and said, uh, we didn't know uh, anything about that, that study that had been done. And, and, and they, the results were uh, no, um, no cons- uh, what is it, medical, no concerns. Uh, on, concerns uh, con- yeah, yeah, no concerns for, to health. No health concerns. Uh, that was uh, the analysis of determination. And they, they said also uh, the, um, ha- uh, the, the health, health department, department should have sent it. them this information uh, because it was done under the health department and blah, blah, blah. And in that email, uh, the letter that went with it, one thing that stood out is the fact that 
they stated in sight in light of this information that we are just now hearing because they didn't tell us i guess their feelings were hurt we now have to uh, uh, the the residents need to kind of look look at this and and maybe make uh, some other types of you know consider this when you're asking to be moved out of the community or when you're asking for other things and right then and there I knew it was about the Benjamins I knew right then and there they were using that information to to send out and use this as a weapon in other words whatever the mayor said about that strike team we're not funding none of that <laughs> we're not doing anything we don't want to do and when they sent that out it set up a firestorm in my community people were calling they were upset they were crying they were like they're not going to do anything to help us they're not going to do they just doing the same old same old it, it is a never-ending it was i call it the shaggy defense it wasn't me that's all union pacific <laughs> says it wasn't me and and, and 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 it's disgusting so don't you have to at first admit or make a determination this is where we are this is the problem before you're willing to do anything substantial to help find a solution we want a solution we just need to we need to fight and hold that hammer over union pacific's head to get that solution resolved, get some sort of resolve from this. I'm sorry, we are rapidly running out of time, so I want to make sure that I take the moment here to thank you so much for coming on and talking about this issue with us and sharing your wisdom and your experience advocating for your communities. Um, as we've discussed, this is an enormously complex issue, environmental yes, health concerns, improving them, yes. you know, these toxic gumbos. It's enormously difficult to be able to trace these things. That's why we talk about cancer clusters rather than being able to identify specific instances, but hearing from community members is so, so valuable, and I really want to thank you for, for all of you for sharing you your expertise so with us you. and taking awesome. the time. Um, I'm going to switch now. Uh, we have a quick segment from our researcher, Jaden Brace Boyce, um, on volunteer opportunities around Houston this week in case you'd like to, to get involved yourself. So we'll switch over to Jaden. Good afternoon, y'all. This weekend is a wonderful weekend to get out and volunteer in your community. If you've been looking for ways to become more active in your community, look no further. This week, sign up to volunteer with Fall Collision Monitoring. If you're an early bird, this opportunity is for you. Volunteering with the Fall Collision Monitoring will take you on a two-mile loop of Houston, where you'll be volunteering in small groups to collect data on injured or killed birds due to built-in collisions. To volunteer, you do not need to have any background knowledge of birds who go through a short training prior to arrival, which will include how to handle injured or deceased birds found in route. Everything you need to be successful will be provided upon arrival. This is a wonderful volunteering opportunity to help preserve the birds in your community. This event takes place on September 9th, starting at 6.30 a.m. until 9 a.m. in downtown Houston. If you're interested in this volunteering opportunity, please contact Gabriel Durham at gdurham at houstonaudubon.org or at 713-932-1639, extension 109. Again, that is gdurham at houstonaudubon.org or at 713-932-1639, extension 109. Additionally, here are a few volunteering opportunities to tune back in in the upcoming weeks. The Buffalo Bayou Partnership helps restore Houston's most significant natural resource. Get involved by picking up trash, removing invasive species, and gardening, among other various tasks. Buffalo Bayou Partnership takes place on the third Saturday of each month. 
Lastly, consider joining the Green Team, part of Bayou Greenway's conservation program. Partake in conservation and restoration efforts, such as removing invasive species and planting in the meadows, wetlands, or forests. This takes place on the second Wednesday of every month from 9 a.m. to noon. You must be 16 years or older to volunteer. If this volunteer opportunity excites you, head on over to HoustonParksBoard.org to register to volunteer today. Check back in the upcoming weeks for more details. Take this opportunity to get more involved in your community and help bring nature back to life. Hope you all have a great rest of your day and stay cool. Thanks for listening. Gulf Streams is a co-production of KPFT Houston and Rice Center for Environmental Studies with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio. Produced by Weston Tordowski, co-produced by Joseph Campana, audio engineer Rico Enriquez, research support by Jaden Brighton Boyce and Sienna Yen. Stay tuned for the R&R Show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here on KPFT Houston. <laughs>